Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer here at HowStuffWorks, and I love all things tech. And in the last episode, I chronicled the 100-year journey of Nokia from a paper mill to a company that was just starting to develop electronics. And before I get into this, like I said in the last episode, uh, I'm pronouncing it Nokia, but I, of course people have said Nokia or Nokia. There are a lot of different pronunciations for it. I'm going with Nokia and... If it's wrong, it's wrong, but I'm going to try and be consistent. Today, we'll pick up with Nokia in the 1960s and quickly make our way up to how it helped define the cellular phone age in the 1990s and then what happened after that, because it was a pretty precipitous fall. But it wasn't like it was just a steady climb either. Upon the formation of the Nokia Corporation, a businessman named Bjorn George Wilhelm Westerland became the first president and CEO of Nokia. Now, he began to look for ways to expand into new fields like electronics and telecommunications. He also encouraged the research and development departments in Nokia to work on their own projects, something that Google would copy decades later, sort of like that 20% of your weekly time can be dedicated to personal projects. It was similar in that way, except not necessarily laid out specifically as 20% of your time. But the whole idea was get smart people together, let them work on things that they think are interesting, and you might be able to benefit from that. Nokia would diversify and begin investing in new businesses, nearly all of which would cater to the Soviet Union's need for electronics and robotics, including computers. Nokia also created manufacturing facilities for scientific equipment, again for the Soviet Union. While the USSR was doing business with Finland, the U.S. was becoming increasingly agitated by the whole thing because this was during the Cold War between the United States and the USSR, and America began to let Nokia know that it was being watched carefully. Nokia was importing components from the United States and then incorporating them in products that it was ultimately selling in the USSR, which wasn't really helping things with the U.S. relations because the United States sort of had this policy of, let's not help the Soviets out if we can possibly avoid it. And uh, this created a very high-tense situation throughout the entire world. And Finland in general and Nokia in particular were kind of straddling the line a little bit. According to the newspaper Madras Courier, Nokia was building computers for the Soviet Union by 1971. Now, I say according to the newspaper because it's actually pretty hard to find a lot of definitive information regarding Nokia's products during this era. The website itself is pretty generic when it comes to covering this. It kind of talks about the founding of the company as a paper mill and then jumps ahead into the 1980s, skipping a whole lot of stuff in the middle. Bjorn Westerlund would retire as CEO in 1977, and he was replaced by Kari Antero Oswald Kairamo. Kairamo had started at Nokia as an engineer in wood processing back when the company was still heavily involved in forestry industries. Like his predecessor, Karimo wanted to grow Nokia and acquire new businesses. He aggressively pursued new opportunities, sometimes to the consternation of analysts. Some industry experts were worried that Nokia was overextending itself, particularly with regards to consumer electronics, which was already a crowded space with fierce competition from the United States and Japanese companies. But that did not stop Kairamo from pursuing them. 
And in 1979, Nokia entered into a partnership with a Finnish television and electronics company called Solora. Their joint venture was called Mobira Oi, a radio telecommunications network and electronics brand. Early radio phones were pretty limited, operating in the VHF frequency range, the very high frequency range, and requiring large antennas and hefty batteries. But this marked Nokia's first steps into what would become cellular phone technology. In fact, now's a good time to talk about cellular phone technology in general. Prior to cellular phones, radio telephones were pretty limited. This has to do with the physics of radio signal transmissions as well as limitations on technology. Now, maybe you've played with radios and wondered what elements determined how far the radios can communicate with each other. Like if you've had walkie-talkies, for example. And as it turns out, there are several factors that determine how far a radio can transmit signals. So let's start with some basic facts about radio waves. The radio frequency spectrum is a significant chunk of the overall electromagnetic spectrum. It ranges on the low end with very low frequency signals, which have a wavelength that can be as long as 100 kilometers or 62 miles for one wave. At that wavelength, the radio signal's frequency, as in the number of cycles of waves that go past an arbitrary point in space within a second, is 3,000 cycles a second, or 3 kilohertz. That means 3,000 of those waves would pass through a point in space every second as the signals pass through the area. On the high end, you have extremely high-frequency radio waves, which measure 0.001 meters, or 0.04 inches, in wavelength, and have a frequency of 300,000 megahertz. That means 300 billion waves will pass through a given point in one second as the signal passes through. Radio wavelength is one factor that determines how far a radio signal will travel on Earth. AM radio signals, which in the United States range from 535 kilohertz to 1.605 MHz, have a long enough wavelength to follow the curvature of the Earth and bounce off the atmosphere, meaning they can travel a really long distance. They can travel beyond the horizon. Shorter wavelengths, such as the ones that the U.S. reserves for radio communication for things like wireless uh, radios and, and walkie-talkies, cellular phones, that kind of thing, they travel in line of sight between a transmitter and a receiver. Now, that does not necessarily mean that you have to be able to physically see the receiver from the transmitter. For one thing, radio waves can penetrate some substances just fine, although other substances can reflect radio waves and cause them to bounce back, which I guess is being redundant, but you get what I'm saying. And because the Earth has curvature, that limits how far a transmitter can send a signal to a receiver because the Earth physically curves away from the line of transmission. If you send out a radio signal straight out from your position, let's say you're standing up and you send out a radio signal, that radio signal is going to continue in a straight line even as the Earth curves away from it. So eventually the Earth curves away enough where no one's going to be able to receive that signal, even if it were strong enough to keep on going and be strong enough to be picked up by an antenna. So the radio signals will just keep on going out into space rather than curving along the Earth. This, by the way, is one of the many pieces of evidence that proves the Earth is, in fact, round. As if we didn't have enough already, but... You know, there are flat earthers out there. If, in fact, the earth was flat, you would not have this problem with radio transmissions. So that's a pretty strong evidence that the earth is round. 
Another limiting factor is transmission power. The power behind a signal helps determine how far it can travel. Technically, it's not how far it can travel, but how strong the signal is uh, once it gets beyond a certain point from its transmission. Now, imagine a radio transmission signal going out in all directions from a transmission antenna. Let's just say it's a regular antenna. It's not a directional antenna. You're sending a, a broadcast signal to this antenna. It's sending it out in essentially a sphere that extends out from that antenna. Now, as the transmission moves further from the antenna, the signal is spread over a wider area, right? It's getting, it's it's thinning out. It's getting uh, spread across more and more space. The law of conservation of energy tells us that the further out you are from a transmitter, the weaker the signal will be because it's spread over a greater area. And eventually, you'll be too far from the source of transmission to pick up any useful signal. It'll be too weak for you to do anything with it, to be able to hear anything. Early mobile phones were big and bulky, largely because they needed a powerful transmitter to get a signal to a nearby radio tower, which would then patch the call into a more traditional telecommunications infrastructure, in other words, into the regular phone system. This is part of the reason why early consumer mobile phones were mostly car phones, because they could pull energy from the car's battery, or they could be big, bulky things that you didn't carry around. They'd be too heavy to carry around, but you could drive them around in your car, and they would rely on a a battery that was strong enough to power a transmitter that could send a signal to a radio tower nearby. And typically, cities would have a single radio tower, maybe a couple of radio towers, And each radio tower was only able to handle maybe a couple of dozen channels of communication simultaneously, which really limited the number of people who could communicate via radio phones at a single time. Because once that channel is activated, no one else can use it. So if you've got a radio tower and it can only handle maybe 24, 26 channels, one of those channels is going to be used for the signal you're sending out, the communication signal you're sending out, one of them would be used for the signal you're getting back. So each person is essentially taking up two channels. And that's because you would want to be able to speak and hear at the same time. If you're using a single channel for a communication back and forth, only one person can speak at a given time. You may have experienced this if you've used CB radio or walkie-talkies or anything like that. Cellular technology helped change this by creating a new means of sending signals across the network. Rather than putting a few large radio antennas in strategic locations in major cities, the cellular tower approach took a totally different approach. More on that in just a second, but first, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Now, before I went into the break, I mentioned that a primitive walkie-talkie can only handle one channel of communication. It's called a half-duplex radio. That means that all parties are communicating over that same frequency, and thus only one person can talk on that frequency at any given time. And that's why we ended up developing a way of explaining to people when we were done talking, you know, you say over at the end of a sentence, meaning you are done with that thought. And that allows other parties to have a chance to chat and add in things. And they would say over when they were done. And that's how you would be able to manage communication traffic across this single channel. 
A cell phone is a full duplex device, which uses one frequency for sending communications and one for receiving communicating signals, which means multiple people can talk over each other. And cell phones have the ability to communicate over more than uh, 1,500 channels, and they don't need to send signals very far because of cell towers. Now, the cell in cell phone refers to regions of coverage, and these regions of coverage are actually pretty small. Each cell region has an allocation of channels that represents a fraction of all available signals for cell phones. So let's say you're looking at a map of a region. Let's say it's a city. And imagine that the the uh, map has an overlay on top of it to show the cell tower allocation. And it would look kind of like a hexagonal overlay. So if you've ever seen uh, hexagonal maps that are often used in gaming, just imagine one of those overlaid on top of a city map. Each hexagon represents a cell, the center of which you would argue is the cell tower. And uh, each cell would have one-seventh of all the channels available for communication in that city. No two adjacent cells would have the same range of signals. So this is just for simplicity's sake. I'm just going to use this as an example. This is not the way it actually shakes out. But let's imagine, hypothetically, that you have 700 channels to work with. The center hexagon, when you start off, let's say that you're at your location and you're looking at a map, the hexagon you are in is using channels 1 through 100. The cell directly to your north can use signals 101 through 200. And then you move clockwise around your center hexagon. You look at each uh, hexagon that's adjacent to yours. Each one would have the next range of signals. So 201 to 300. The next one would be 301 to 400 and so on. Now, because cell phones transmit at a low power signal, just at a few watts, the transmissions do not go very far. The signal attenuates enough. It, it, it loses enough energy that it's not going to be picked up beyond the next cell tower uh, hexagon. You don't have to worry about interfering with the immediate neighbors. That means you can actually reuse the channels again once you have a different cell in between them. So an entire city could use just 700 channels this way, repeating channels once there's enough space between two cell towers that use that same range. So your center hexagon and a hexagon on the other side of one of your neighbors could use the exact same set of frequencies because you're not going to interfere with your transmissions. The big advantage of cell phones is obviously that they're mobile. And as you move toward the edge of a cell, your cell's tower... Uh, the, the one that's in the hexagon you are currently in, it starts to detect that your signal is diminishing in strength. Meanwhile, the neighboring cell tower is picking up that your signal is starting to get stronger. Now, every cell tower is monitoring the entire range of channels, not just the channels that are specific to that cell. So they can they can monitor all of the channels of communication. They're only really concerned with the block of channels that are assigned to that particular cell, however. Now, when you get close enough to the new cell, your old cell tower, the one that was where you used to be, will hand off the signal to its neighbor, to whatever neighboring tower you're heading toward. And that will send instructions to your phone that will switch channel frequencies. 
This all happens seamlessly. It can happen in the middle of a conversation, and it happens so quickly that we humans don't even notice that it happens, assuming that everything's working properly. And you can have a call on a speakerphone and pass through half a dozen cells through a single call as you're driving across town, and you wouldn't have a problem, assuming everything's working the way it's supposed to. Now, this concept of cell towers dates back to about 1971 when AT&T referred to splitting phone service in cities into areas called cells. The first mobile phone call happened in 1973 when Dr. Martin Cooper of Motorola made the first cell phone call to Dr. Joel S. Engel, who was the head of Bell Labs. So in other words, Dr. Cooper called up his biggest competitor for the first cell phone call, which I think is pretty awesome. And it took about a decade in the United States for companies to build out this technology and the protocols and the infrastructure to make cell phones a viable commercial product. Uh, That was already taking place in Europe, but we were a little bit behind here in the U.S. Now, that's a basic overview of how cellular towers work, and there's a lot more detail than what I just mentioned, including the differences between analog and digital cellular service, but it's good enough for our discussions about Nokia. So let's get back to that company. While the VHF phone service that Nokia launched in the late 70s wasn't cellular necessarily, not not in the same way that we would call it today, the company soon focused on developing cell phones due to the construction of the Nordic Mobile Telephone Network, or NMT. This network provided coverage across Finland, Sweden, Denmark, and Norway, and then later Iceland, making it the first international cellular network. The networks launched in Sweden and Norway in 1981, and then in Finland and Denmark the following year, and that gave companies like Nokia the opportunity to develop handsets for consumers during this, you know, using the service as its backbone. In 1982, Nokia released the Mobira Senator. This was a car phone. It had a hefty battery to provide for the transmission strength needed to send signals from the phone to a radio tower, and the Senator weighed 22 pounds, or 10 kilograms. Pretty heavy phone. You can see why it was a car phone, not a cell phone that you would carry around with you. While the senator saw limited success, it became the first step toward Nokia asserting itself in a growing industry. And the company would release a slightly lighter, transportable phone, that was what they called it, called the Mobira Talkman which weighed in at 11 pounds, or 5 kilograms, so half the weight of the Senator, but still pretty darn heavy. In 1987, the company, still producing phones under the Mobira name, introduced the first handheld mobile phone, and they called it the Mobira Cityman 900. It weighed about 1.68 pounds, or 760 grams. That's according to one source. I saw everything from 760 grams up to 800 grams. So 1.68 to like 1.76 pounds, somewhere in that range. It also cost a pretty penny. The price tag for the handset, which was in a brick style with a big antenna, and this was a a big mobile phone, it cost 24,000 Finnish marks back in 1987. That would be about $5,450 in U.S. money at the time. So if we adjust that for inflation... That would be worth about $11,843 today. So imagine spending nearly $12,000 for a mobile phone. It got the nickname Gorba in Finland. Why? Because during a press conference in 1987, Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev was photographed using one. He called uh, 
Moscow, I believe, during the press conference using such a phone. In 1988, a highly competitive electronics market meant that Nokia saw a big drop in profits. Times were getting tight for Nokia. CEO Kairamo, who had also served as chairman between 1986 and 1988, tragically ended his own life in December 1988, a fact that Nokia at first tried to keep quiet. While there has been speculation over what moved Kairamo to commit suicide, I found no definitive reason, though there's no doubt he was under tremendous stress at the time, though whether or not that directly contributed, I can't say. Simo Verlato assumed control of the company, which at the time was still several businesses in very different industries, all kind of glommed on together. This new CEO called for a complete restructuring of the company, and the company began to divest itself of various businesses, including the Finnish Rubber Works, which was the first uh, major company to create Nokia. I mean, you remember there was the paper mill that came before it that was technically called Nokia, but it was the founder of the Finnish Rubber Works who really put all these companies together in the first place. Uh, he also divested the company of Nokia's computer division. Finland at the time was entering a severe economic recession. It was essentially a depression that was greater in magnitude than the one in the 1930s for Finland. And then the Soviet Union collapsed. And the Soviets had been Nokia's chief customers. So things were looking pretty grim for the company. But the story doesn't end here. I'll tell you how the story does end in just a second. But first, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. During this dire economic situation, Nokia released the Nokia 1011 phone. It was one of the earliest phones to have the Nokia name, not a Mobira brand, although it was also called the Mobira Cityman 2000 in some publications. It had a battery that allowed for 90 whole minutes of talk time before needing a recharge, and it could hold up to 99 contact numbers. It worked on the Global System for Mobile Communication Standard, better known as GSM. This eventually became the dominant standard for mobile phones worldwide, with Code Division Multiple Access, or CDMA, being a distant second place. GSM would end up being pretty used pretty much everywhere, whereas CDMA became a standard found mainly in the United States and Russia. And in fact, even in the U.S., it was a bit confusing because you had some telephone networks working on GSM and others working on CDMA. In 1992, Yerma Alala became the new CEO of Nokia. Alala, who had been the head of Nokia's mobile device division, decided the future of the company was in telecommunications, and so he continued the trend of divesting Nokia of all other businesses in order to focus exclusively on telecommunications. Shedding those businesses turned out to be the right move, as Nokia was able to refocus and grow and return to profitability. In 1994, Nokia introduced the 2100 line of phones. This was the first phone to have the famous Nokia ringtone, which goes like this. I'm sure you've heard it a billion times. That's when it dated from 1994. Two years later, in 96, the company released a sort of proto-smartphone called the Nokia 9000 Communicator, 
This thick handset flipped open to reveal a monochromatic screen and a full QWERTY keyboard, along with a direction pad and function keys. You could make calls, you could browse the web, such as it was back in 1996, and even send a fax using this phone. The device wasn't a commercial success, but found its fair share of devoted fans nonetheless. Nokia also released a phone called the Nokia 8110. It featured a cover that would slide down to reveal the number pad on the phone, inspiring some people to call this the banana phone. It was featured in a little film that came out in 1999. You might have heard of it. It's called The Matrix. If you remember the scene where Neo's in his office and he gets a delivery and he opens up the package and there's a phone inside it and immediately he gets a phone call, that's the phone. It's a Nokia 8110. So watch that scene, and you'll see this famous phone highlighted on screen. By 1998, Nokia had become the world's largest mobile phone manufacturer. Not bad, considering that they had just made the decision to focus exclusively on telecommunications just a few years earlier. This was a company that was doing a lot of everything. And then when they really focused on this one industry, they dominated it. They wrestled the title away from Motorola, and Nokia remained the top mobile phone company in the world for more than a decade. In fact, I think it was 14 years that they held the top spot. One of the big selling features for their phones was that you could play this little nifty game called Snake on them. Look, times were tough, and we took entertainment where we could find it, guys. In 1999 and 2000, Nokia launched the 3210 and the 3310 handsets, which both would sell like hotcakes. They'd be dwarfed in sales a few years later, however. When the 1100 series launched, Nokia would sell more than 250 million 1100 handsets, making it not just the best-selling mobile handset of all time, but also the best-selling consumer electronics product at that point. In 2002, Nokia entered into a joint venture with Scion and a couple of handset manufacturing competitors, that being Ericsson and Motorola. The three of them joined together with the purpose of creating an operating system for mobile devices. The handset manufacturers wanted to build out the features on phones and increase their capabilities and create various little things that we would call apps today. And they wanted it to go well beyond sending and receiving calls and text messages and doing some rudimentary web browsing. The joint venture became Symbian Limited, and the operating system is, of course, known as Symbian. Symbian serves as the foundation for software platforms, and different handset manufacturers have different overlays on top of the basic operating system. You can think of them as different flavors of Symbian. So for Nokia, as well as for Samsung and LG, that platform was called S60, also known as Series 60 User Interface. The first Nokia phone to launch with this operating system was the Nokia 7650 in 2002. This was the first of Nokia's phones to have a built-in camera and a color display. It's largely referred to as one of the first smartphones, though it was still on 2G networks at the time. The first 3G phone from Nokia was the 6650, which came out a little bit later. By the way, this numbering standard, I don't understand where it comes from. 7s, 8s, 6s, 10s, 2s... They don't seem to be sequential, so I don't really get it. But the Nokia 3650 would be the first Symbian Series 60 phone available in the United States, and it had a video recorder. So we were starting to see these more advanced features get incorporated in Nokia phones. 
Now, I could list all the phones Nokia launched in the 2000s, but that would get super old super fast. Suffice it to say that the company was churning out new models covering a spectrum of features and budgets in those years. Year after year, Nokia was topping the list of mobile handset manufacturers. Its brand was known throughout the world, and the company was the in the best financial shape in its entire history. Now, that didn't mean that they didn't stumble a couple of times along the way. In 2003, for example, Nokia launched a device that became the punchline for many tech articles. It was a mobile gaming device called the Engage. It was part phone, part handheld gaming console. Not a bad idea, necessarily, but the form factor left a lot of people laughing or scratching their heads. The shape of the device inspired people to call it a taco, because it was kind of taco-shaped. And the placement of the speakers and microphone meant you had to hold the top edge, the flat side of the edge, not the surface, but the edge of the taco, against your ear. So it would stick out from the side of your face quite a bit. It seemed weird to have it like that instead of using the flat side of the device. So it looked pretty ridiculous. In stark contrast with the 200 million plus 1100 handsets that Nokia had sold, they managed to only sell around 3 million in-gauge units, and they did not get good reviews. That just didn't take off. Yerma Alila retired in 2006 as CEO and would become the chairman of the company. The new CEO was Ala Pekka Kalasva. In 2007, Apple introduced the iPhone, which, as you may recall, caused quite the stir in the mobile device world. Nokia, for its part, launched a service called Ovi, O-V-I, that encompassed internet services for Nokia's own line of feature phones. Also in 2007, Nokia had a big problem when the company had to recall 46 million cell phone batteries across nearly all of its devices. Nokia promised that it was going to come out with a flagship phone called the N8 that would be a big competitor in the smartphone space, but it took longer to develop than the company had anticipated. There were a lot of delays that frustrated customers, and things were not looking good for the company. Smartphones like the iPhone and various Android handsets were starting to take a serious chunk out of Nokia's dominant position. It was clear Nokia had not reacted fast enough to this changing landscape and allowed Apple, Android, and even BlackBerry to dominate, although BlackBerry wouldn't be a problem for very much longer. By 2010, the company directors felt there was a need for change, and they fired Kalisva and hired the first non-Finnish CEO for Nokia, Stephen Elup. Elup had previously worked for Microsoft. In 2011, he likened Nokia's market position to that of a man standing on a burning platform. Things were looking pretty tough. By this time, Nokia was the only handset manufacturer still using Symbian. Nokia had a new operating system in development called Mego Linux in a partnership with Intel and launched a phone that used it, but ultimately the company decided to scrap that plan in favor of concentrating on Microsoft's Windows Phone operating system. Interesting, since Elop had become the new president and CEO of the company. In November 2011, the company introduced the Lumia 800 Windows Phone. The Windows Phone platform underperformed in the market, which is an understatement. Nokia began to incur huge losses, and Elop announced that Nokia would eliminate 10,000 jobs, shutting down a manufacturing processing plant as well. In 2013, Nokia announced it was selling its mobile division. 
which accounted for most of the company's success in the 2000 era. And they were selling it to, ba da ba ba Microsoft. The sale was complete in 2014, and the division was renamed Microsoft Mobile. Elop headed back over to Microsoft. I'm sure this raised several eyebrows. Nokia changed its focus once again, now concentrating on network equipment and services. Nokia is now in the business of running infrastructure for devices like mobile phones rather than making mobile phones. It's also become a player in the Internet of Things space, and it still makes consumer electronic products under the Nokia Technologies division. And it's still in the phone business because it actually owns a phone company, although it leases it to a Chinese company called TCL. It's licensed uh, the technology to TCL. So they don't make them themselves. They license the name to another company. So Nokia still exists, though its dominance in the mobile device market is no more. Really interesting to see how a company went from being the top brand in an industry and just in a couple of years falling so hard. But then when you look at the full history of Nokia, you really realize that the cell phone part of its history is one of the shortest span of years in the entire company's history. I mean, it went for more than a century before it started looking into consumer electronics seriously. So in the grand scheme of things, it was a blip on the radar. But for many of us who are not familiar with the name of the company, and by us, I specifically am talking about myself, it seems pretty shocking. I want to be totally clear here. I think that a lot of the decisions that were made by the company executives throughout the history of Nokia were probably pretty solid decisions at the time they were being made. It's just that the circumstances that surrounded them, much of which were beyond their control, ended up hurting the company. Uh, the only thing I think was a real detriment for them was their lack of initiative once the smartphone revolution really took off. And that wraps up our story on Nokia. Maybe in the future I'll do a follow-up if there are any other interesting things to talk about. There were some stories that I didn't cover uh, there were some troubling stories about Nokia and the way its technology was handled in Iran. There were accusations that Nokia allowed the Iranian government enough power to be able to limit the technology when Iranian citizens were trying to use it to communicate with one another and protest the government. But I felt like that was beyond the scope of this episode. It might be that it uh, better serve to have a full episode about technology and its use on different sides of political disagreements, political turmoil. I think that could be a really interesting episode that I might do in the future. If you have a suggestion for a future episode, please let me know what you would like me to talk about. Maybe it's a company, maybe it's a technology, maybe it's a person, maybe there's someone you want me to interview or have on as a guest host. You can send me an email. That address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle of both of those is techstuffhsw. Follow our Instagram. Make sure you watch me live on twitch.tv slash techstuff. And I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 